Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of the LGBT Bar of New York. We call this episode Trump Bench Slap. That's because a district court hearing one of the challenges to Trump's hateful transgender military ban saw right through the Trump administration's attempt to dress up the same old ban with some fresh paint. And because the administration suffered a total defeat in an asylum case before the Ninth Circuit, Trump's favorite circuit. We will begin by chatting about these cases with Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School. Art is the chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Then we're going to chat with our legal director, Brett Fogluski, about a New York parenting case involving a child who was conceived and raised by three individuals in a tri-parent arrangement. And of course, Art will be surprising me with his choice for our Of Note segment. Let's dig in. So, Art, we are once again kicking things off with a discussion of Trump's unconstitutional trans-military ban. Today, we're looking at the recent order in the Lambda Legal Outserve SLDN case, Karnowski versus Trump. Here, the court totally saw through the lame attempt by the administration to argue that the old tweet and the ban had been revoked and replaced, rendering as moot the four preliminary injunctions blocking the ban. So let's talk about this recent order, Art. Okay, so this is uh, a decision issued by U.S. District Judge Marsha Peckman on April 13th and a follow-up order on April 19th that I'll also be mentioning that deals with the issue of discovery. Uh, the Trump administration came up with a strategy which they thought would get rid of these cases, right? They're facing four preliminary injunctions from around the country uh, which were stopping them from implementing what President Trump announced in August, actually announced in broad sense in July in his tweets and then uh-huh. fleshed out at his uh, memorandum in August. Uh, and all of those injunctions say that that policy that was announced in August may not go into effect while the courts decide on the merits whether that's unconstitutional. Uh, so on March 23, as we uh, discussed last month, uh, the administration issued a new memorandum from Mattis recommending the policy uh, in response to the directions he received from Trump back in August to come up with written recommendations. Uh, and Trump issued a brief memorandum uh, which said he was revoking the August memo and any other statements he made, which is his way of referring to his tweets, uh, and he is authorizing Mattis and the Secretary of Homeland Security, who has jurisdiction over the Coast Guard, to implement whatever policy they think is appropriate, but indicating in his memo, and what they've described to me is that we're going to exclude transgender people. <laughs> Here's what with, you should do. With certain exceptions. <laughs> right. Uh, so so they argued that those, uh, those preliminary injunctions were moot and that the lawsuit was moot because the lawsuits are all attacking the August policy, and now we have a different policy. Yeah, old ban, new packaging. Yes, new packaging. <laughs> and furthermore, they said... Uh, that uh, the plaintiffs in these cases don't have standing anymore because one of the things that Mattis was recommending is that we let people who are in stay in. Mm. We don't automatically exclude them. Uh, If they started transitioning uh, in the time that the Obama administration's policy was in effect, we'll let them continue that process and serve. But at any rate, 
they're arguing that, okay, all of the plaintiffs, or at least all of the plaintiffs who are already serving, don't have any standing anymore because they're not being threatened with discharge. And uh, that uh, they didn't see that there was any standing for the people who uh, uh, are not already serving and are, are opposing the enlistment ban because they said they may not be qualified anyway. Mm. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Judge Peckman didn't accept any of that. She said they all still have standing because even the people who are serving, if there's new policies in effect, they're going to be treated like second-class citizens and all kinds of restrictions on what mm -hmm. they can do. Uh, so she still saw standing for them and for the state of Washington, which had intervened as a plaintiff in this case. To but get to citizens. what's really... But what's really, really important yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, what is the standard of judicial review here? And she went out on a, a bit of a limb for a federal district judge to do these days. But she said, I have rethought what I wrote last fall when I issued the preliminary injunction, and I said it was a heightened scrutiny case, mm -hmm. which is what all the other judges have said. It's a heightened scrutiny case. I think this is a strict scrutiny case. I think transgender people are a suspect class. Wow. I think looking at the test that the Supreme Court has used to identify suspect classes, and they haven't identified any new ones for decades, but I think looking at those uh, criteria, transgender people meet that criteria. She said there's a history of discrimination, uh, there's no indication that uh, gender identity has anything to do with the person's ability to participate in society. Uh, they don't have a lot of political power on their own and have difficulty forming coalitions because of the general societal prejudices, etc. And she said, I think they're a suspect class. Uh, and that means that we presume that the policy is unconstitutional mm -hmm. and the burden is on the government to show a compelling justification for it. This is a big deal. Right. This is a big deal. And uh, certainly it's going to be part of the basis for them appealing if the, if the government wants to appeal her ultimate ruling, saying that the, she used the wrong standard of review. Uh, but the government does have at least a fighting chance because they will claim they should have deference right. for And that's the other area, where this, which is pretty big news in here. Right. Uh, you know, this, this report that was uh, submitted to the White House in February and released on March 23rd, she said, well, you know, I, I, I'm dubious about this report. For one thing, <laughs> the report doesn't state who wrote it. Right. And there were press reports saying that this report was hatched at the Heritage Foundation. It mm -hmm. had nothing to do with the Defense Department. It had nothing to do with military expertise. But she said, here's, here's the problem I have. I can't decide right now in response to the plaintiff's motion for summary judgment, I can't decide whether I have to give deference or how much deference because of this new report that was just sprung on us in the past week. She said the plaintiffs haven't had a chance to really respond to it, although I would say that the plaintiffs have already, uh, allies of the plaintiffs have already issued withering criticisms of it, <laughs> and the American Psychiatric Association blasted it. Uh, the Palm Center blasted it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it seems to me that it's pretty clear that it's a report that has very little credibility, and it's obviously hatched up as a political document in response to litigation. It, it isn't a serious study. It was done in a matter of a few months when uh, the study on which the uh, Obama administration based their change of policy commissioned from the Rand Corporation, it was a serious study that was undertaken over a period of years. Uh, so uh, she said... For this reason, I cannot rule on the plaintiff's motion for summary judgment because we have material facts to decide. So we need a trial here, and we need discovery. And this has been a sore point in this case. 
from the beginning because the administration has never been willing to identify who were the generals and experts that Trump claimed he consulted in July before he issued his tweet. Right. And who were not named in his August memo either, and who are not named in this new February memorandum from Mattis. And uh, the judge is losing patience with this aspect very, of the uh, evasive... So. Uh, on, on April 19th, she issued a ruling rejecting defendants' motion for a protective order. Uh, they want everything to be kept secret <laughs> in this case. And uh, they also don't want to be required to reveal the identity of who made this report and who the president may have consulted and who Mattis may have consulted. They want everything to be top secret. Uh, and the Defense Department is taking the position that they're not going to implement anything new as long as those preliminary injunctions are in effect. And Judge Peckman isn't going to rescind hers. So even if the others are rescinded, hers is a nationwide preliminary injunction, so it's not going to be rescinded. So nothing is going to change. The status quo is sort of frozen now. Transgender people can serve. Those who are in the transition process are still covered by medical health insurance. Right. Uh, uh, but insurance. it's worth noting that they're, you know, we're still, transgender service members are still living with, these are just preliminary injunctions. Right. So there is no finality right now. There's this cloud of uncertainty that service members are currently serving under. And, you know, they don't know if they'll lose their jobs, their health care. So, you know, even though this ban has been blocked, every day that we're dealing with things just being stalled or um, the uncertainty is cruel and, um, you know, harms the transgender service members who are bravely serving our country. It's very Trumpian, isn't it? It's, it's like well, the position that the DACA kids are in. It's true. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the same limbo. thing. It's all these people are in limbo. And, right. And, uh, and the new order that came down from Attorney General Sessions now that uh, families arriving at the border will be separated. The kids will be sent in one direction, the parents in the other. So cruel. Uh, it's cruel and it's inhumane and uh, it's an attempt to terrorize the parents into not trying to cross the border with their kids. All right, well, let's take a short break, and when we come back, let's continue to talk about more Trump smackdowns, this time by looking at an asylum case out of the Ninth Circuit. We're back. In a special podcast last week, we discussed how Trump's Muslim ban was impacting LGBT people. President Trump's total attack on immigrants has resulted in a number of policy changes impacting asylum seekers. Last year, immigration judges who, it's worth noting, are employed by the Justice Department and not part of the judicial branch like federal court judges, rejected about 62% of asylum cases, which is the highest denial rate since 2005. As Art mentioned to me, it's been some time since we've talked about asylum cases on this podcast. So this month, we're going to talk about a really interesting one in the Ninth Circuit. Art, let's talk about this case uh, involving a gay man from... The opinion, unfortunately, most of these opinions in immigration cases, they don't go into the facts in much detail because they tend to be focused on procedural issues right. and standard of review and things of that sort. So we know and we've so got a gay man from Ghana. We but know we've got a gay man from Ghana. We don't know exactly what happened to him, but okay. it seems from various hints throughout the opinion that he was subjected to what could be characterized as torture mm -hmm. while he was in Ghana and was certainly sub subjected to persecution. And uh, there is no indication that he has come into the U.S. illegally or mm -hmm. that he has violated the law while he's here. There's no mention of 
uh, him being disqualified from asylum or removal because of a criminal record or anything like that. So here's a gay man from Ghana who has applied for asylum in the United States and withholding of removal in case the asylum isn't granted and protection under the Convention Against Torture, uh, providing evidence that he has been tortured in the past. And there's no indication by the immigration judge or by the BIA that there's any problem with his credibility. And yet, they denied his petition for asylum, they denied his petition for withholding, and they denied him relief under the Convention Against Torture. So first, addressing the asylum claim, the court said the BIA's only basis for denying Abbas's asylum application was that Abbas had not met his burden to show that the Ghanaian government is unable or unwilling to protect him from anti-gay violence or harm. They don't, they don't argue that he did not suffer persecution in the past. Rather, they, they said to us, remand this case and give the agency another opportunity to elicit testimony from Abbas about whether he reported his attack to the police. And they said, just a minute. I mean, you can hear the judges thinking, what world are you in? Right. This is Ghana, where the police regularly shake down gay people and extort them and, uh, you know, beat them up and stuff like that. And this is all well documented. They arrest members, gay gay people who report violence. Right. Homosexuality is criminalized right. in Ghana. They, yeah, they said it's uh, gay sex is against the law. There, you wouldn't go to a police officer and say, "Oh, I'm gay." That's also the danger of denying an asylum case like this. Is now it's part of the public record that right. um, this individual is is gay, and right. if he's sent back to Ghana, all they have to do is Google his name, and up comes you right. know his, the decision. So. Uh, the the court said, look, he is clearly entitled to asylum. Mm -hmm. We don't even have to remand for any new fact findings. We can order that uh, this case go directly to, actually goes to the attorney general to exercise his discretion. But it follows as a matter of course in a case like this. And they said, of course, if he's entitled to asylum, he's also entitled to withholding of removal. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think that the same evidence uh, going to the asylum issue because it's very clear that he has a reasonable fear of persecution if he's sent back, and that's the test. Mm-hmm. Does he have a reasonable fear of persecution? If he does, since uh, it has been well established now for about 25 years, uh, since the beginning of the Clinton administration, that uh, gay people are a uh, particular social group for purposes of immigra- of asylum law, it's a clear case. Then about the Convention Against Torture, mm-hmm. uh, the BIA says the court found that Abbas did not demonstrate that Ghanaian officials acquiesced in his past torture or would acquiesce in any future torture, and the BIA concluded that he could safely relocate to another part of Ghana. And once again, it's like, what planet are you on? Not only, says the court, not only does Ghana have a law that criminalizes homosexual conduct, other evidence in the record points to Ghanaian officials' acquiescence to torture of LGBT persons. Various political leaders call for rounding up LGBT persons and even call for them to be lynched. The U.S. Human Rights Report, that is from the State Department, likewise states that, quote, the attitude of the police toward LGBT persons was a factor preventing victims from reporting incidents of abuse. The record also contains multiple examples of police extortion of gay men. Thus, we find that the record compels the factual finding that the government acquiesces to torture of LGBT persons. Wow. And it says, any reasonable trier of fact would be compelled to conclude that Abbas 
will be more likely than not subject to torture if removed to Ghana. His past torture is the primary factor we permissibly rely on when deciding whether he would more likely than not suffer future torture in Ghana. Secondly, says the court, the BIA's finding that Abbas would be able to safely relocate was not supported by substantial evidence. His testimony supports that he was in hiding for a month before fleeing Ghana, and relocation is difficult because of pervasive homophobic attitudes throughout the country. Wow. He provided a declaration that he would be killed upon returning to Ghana, and one of his declarations even stated that his lover had already been killed. Wow. Further, we have established that the Convention Against Torture cannot be denied on the basis of a petitioner being expected to conceal his or her identity or beliefs. And uh, the court noted that a United Kingdom border agency report states that relocation in Ghana is difficult because homophobic attitudes are so pervasive. So there's no support in the record for the BIA's conclusion that he could safely relocate to Mm -hmm. another part of the country. And in addition, the court found the record supports a finding, quote, Ghana is rife with gross, flagrant, or mass violations of human rights. Wow citing to numerous newspaper clippings that were in the record. Uh, And he had provided evidence that the education ministry had vowed, quote, to severely punish any student caught engaging in homosexual or lesbianism activities. And that Amnesty International has condemned public officials for publicly endorsing lynching gay people. Wow. So the court said no further fact-finding is required. Right. He's entitled to protection on all three grounds, asylum, withholding of removal, and uh, Convention Against Torture. And uh, you so know, they just send it back and say, do it, guys. Right. And, and you know, this raises the question for me. Uh, he's from Ghana. Okay. Ghana is on uh, the list of countries that Mr. Trump doesn't want people to come here from, mm-hmm. right? It, that he is referred to by an expletive that we will not use in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he claims he didn't use, but so many people heard it that he can't really disclaim it. Uh, the question is, has the president's racism reset the agenda for the immigration judges and the Board of Immigration Appeals. He wants to crack down on immigration. He wants to crack down on asylum. He wants to have a low cap on the number. And he preferred that people who seek asylum come from, like, the Nordic countries. Right. You know, so, you know, what's going on with our... uh, The federal courts here have to be the last uh, line of defense against this racism infecting the whole uh, system of asylum. Uh, we're party to treaties. Of course, Trump, Trump treats a treaty like any contract. Mm-hmm. It's made to be broken. Yeah. But uh, it's it's really shocking. And uh, I well, would, and as we noted, you know, immigration judges are part of the executive branch. They right? are they're not appointed in the Justice Department. Yeah, they're not you know part of our judicial branch. And a lot of you know this gentleman was lucky enough, as you point out, to be represented by, by a counsel. lawyer. Right. But in most of these cases, you're dealing with unrepresented folks. Who are, who are not dealing in their native language in most cases. Right. And uh, who are not necessarily all that fluent. Uh, in fact, one of the other cases, we report on four asylum or withholding cases in, in law notes this month uh, from Trinidad, Cameroon, and Romania, as well as this one from Ghana. And sometimes the problem is someone comes from a population group that has its own particular language or dialect, and there is no interpreter available who is really fluent in that. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very difficult situation in the federal courts. They have limited jurisdiction. The Ninth mm-hmm. Circuit has been particularly activist 
in policing this uh, because they get lots and lots of these uh, people coming up from Mexico and South and South, South and Central America. You say activists. One might say fair. <laughs> I would say fair, but but I'd say you know they would be criticized as perhaps not being as deferential as you would expect yeah. because of the outrageous stuff they see coming up from the BIA. Well, you just wonder how this w- case would have fared if it had been in the Fifth Circuit or Fifth somewhere Circuit. else. It would have been a problem in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, but you don't get many people from Ghana in the Fifth Circuit. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, you know, this case is certainly, as you said, there are a couple of interesting asylum cases that you've covered in Law Notes this month, but these cases are woefully undercovered. Well, the press um, doesn't report about them at all. Right. Really. Uh, so people who are, who are interested, uh, the, uh, the case is Abbas, E-A-B-A-S-S versus Sessions. It's a Ninth Circuit case from April 27th. And the Ninth Circuit puts their opinions right up there on the website. You don't need to subscribe to any uh, get-behind-a-paywall to see them. So it's worth people reading because it goes through in detail what the tests are. Yeah. It's a fascinating opinion. You ask some really probing questions at the end about Trump statements, racism, directives to the federal government to... Um, maybe pursue some of the president's racist policies in the way they're enforcing um, and, and administering um, asylum cases. And so... Well, and one, one thing we should mention, there was uh, something in the news recently uh, that they're planning to uh, put a quota system on the immigration I did see judges, that, yeah. uh, which would require them to spend minimal amount of time per case. Well, this is certainly a case that will make your blood boil, and thank goodness, you know, the outcome here uh, from the Ninth Circuit gives you some sense that there's justice in the world, but, um, you know, thank you for reporting on this case. I think it's a really interesting, um, a really interesting case and a really interesting take. Um, So let's take another break, and when we come back, I'll chat with our legal director about a tri-parenting case out of New York State Court. back. As our listeners will know, Legal has a legal helpline, we have a legal help clinic, and a litigation presence here in New York courts. Our legal director, Brett Figlewski, has been leading this work, particularly in the area of LGBT family law in New York, so it's always a pleasure to sit down with him and to talk about important developments that impact same-sex couples and all LGBT families. Today we're going to be talking about a really interesting tri-parent agreement case um, so, Brett, welcome. Hello again, Eric. Hello. So, tell us a little bit about the facts of the case here. Uh, is three really a crowd? Well, I, depend, I suppose it depends on whom you ask. And in this case, there were three individuals, a married gay male couple and their female friend, and they decided that they all wished to be parents, and so they entered into an arrangement whereby they indeed would be a family to the baby that would be born. So this case really tests the principles in the Brooke B decision about applying intent and consent of putative parents to child custody matters. So what are the, are there any, uh, what, what brings this case before the court now? Sure, so what happened was things were going well until a few months after the child's birth and then the fathers of the child and the child's mother 
began disputing with respect to parenting and access to the child. And so the two fathers filed a petition for custody and the mother filed a cross petition. So this Mm. court was brought before the family court in New York County and the family court judge issued a decision saying that the principles outlined in the Brooke B case, basically the principles of intent and consent of the putative parents and also the best interest of the child should guide the decision and clearly all three individuals in this case should be deemed to have standing to seek custody and visitation rights with respect to this child. So before things started to fall apart between the parties involved here, what were some of the what was some of the evidence that the court kind of cited to show the intent was there to be in a tri-parent agreement? Well, these parties had posted photos of themselves as the parents-to-be. They had um, selected T-shirts which said, we're going to be the fathers, I'm going to be the mother, something Mm -hmm. to that effect. Um, They jointly selected a midwife. They jointly paid for the midwife. They all attended pre-birth classes together. It turned out that the non-biological father... Um, ended up taking paternity leave after the birth of the child. Mm-hmm. In fact, the the sperm donations were alternated um, between both fathers, and obviously one ended up being the genetic father and the other the non-biological father. Um, they took a vacation together in the summer. So what were some of the arguments that the, that the mother was making to the court? Well... The mother argued that though the non-biological father should have standing, he should not be deemed to be a parent. And so there's kind of a fine distinction at work there. And later in the decision, the court says that though it finds that the non-biological father is indeed a parent, he's a parent for the purposes of custody and visitation only. Mm -hmm. And so this remains an issue which is going to be litigated in the courts. Basically, this particular judge said that were the father to file for paternity or were the mother to file for support, then the court would have to decide whether an order of affiliation would be warranted or some kind of declaration of parentage. So this remains something that the courts are wrestling with. Some courts have issued a declaration of parentage or an order of affiliation upon a determination that a parent has standing pursuant to the Brookby holding, but this court declined to do so. So that remains a wrinkle that we're going to see in future cases, I think. So if this, is there any, do we know if this case is going to go up on appeal or if it does, um, you know, what are the, what, what do you think the chances are of a good ruling um, from, from a New York appellate court? Well, that's a good question. I, I think that this is a very good case and it's groundbreaking for our community because so many of our families require multiple individuals to form a family and they make decisions in different ways regarding who's going to be a parent and who may only be 
a sperm donor or an egg donor or something of that nature. So the court did distinguish this case from the kinds of cases where you have a married couple, say a couple like Joy and Danielle Barbour in our second department case, which was recently decided, a married lesbian couple who had a child by means of a sperm donor who explicitly agreed that he did not want to be a parent. So that's a different situation from what we have here. So, um, so it's interesting to see how these different legal principles in family law come to play. They kind of overlap based on the different permutations before the court. So in terms of whether this will go up on appeal, we don't know. But I think that it's very strong. And I mean, the reasoning is very strong. And it's interesting to note, too, that instead of relying on a footnote in the Brookby decision, there was a footnote much quoted um, because it was of much concern that only two individuals, that New York only recognizes two individuals as a parent. And that's largely because, in my opinion, of a kind of formalistic reading of the word either, because domestic relations law section 70 says either petition, either parent may petition for a writ of habeas corpus. So some courts have said that either clearly means two. I think, that, I think that's a really formalistic reading of it. And instead, this court relied on the broader... You're not an originalist, well, a strict I'm, constructionist. Well, I'm a, an originalist in terms of the, the intent and the principles which serve as the foundation of the statute. And I think the Brooke... B case got it right that the principle is really best interest of the child and what is the intent and consent of the parties and what has been the actual reality of the way in which the parties have parented a child. So those are really the principles that courts are now free to look at. So I think that the reasoning was strong and that this, if it were appealed, um, would stand. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, Brett, for joining us to talk about this really interesting case. And uh, we look forward to the future involvement that you have in pushing Brookby to continue to recognize our families and to protect our families in the way that we form families uh, today. Well, stay tuned because Legal is working with a number of families across the state, and so perhaps their cases will be featured, featured on future podcasts, and hopefully we will have successes to report. So thanks again. Well, thank you, Brett. Thank you, Eric. And now we're back with our very special of note segment. And as usual, Art is going to surprise me. I have no idea what he's going to talk about. But what have you got for us today, Art? Okay, what I've got for us is a gay judge who says that a trans plaintiff cannot sue for employment discrimination anonymously. Very interesting case. It's it's a decision by Paul Etkin, who was the first yeah. openly out gay man to be a federal district judge appointed. Uh, serving here in New York. Yeah, by President Obama, uh, serving here in the Southern District. and A friend uh, to the LGBT Bar yes, Association. Right, a member, York, a member of Bar Association. <laughs> yes. So uh, the plaintiff in this case uh, filed his uh, employment discrimination Title VII claim in federal district court and immediately... Uh, sought by an ex parte order to proceed as a John Doe. Judge Etkin granted the ex parte offer with, uh, without prejudice to the defendant's right to seek lifting of the order, which they have now done. What was the plaintiff's 
uh, reason. Uh, says that trans masculinity is an intimate detail that they don't want to disclose through the public record. Okay. Uh, that outing them as trans masculine would compound the trauma they have already suffered from the defendant's discrimination against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, outing them in this way would place them at further risk of discrimination by employees at their new job. Okay. Who don't know that they're transmasculine. Mm-hmm. And finally, that as a parent of school-aged children, the plaintiff is concerned that disclosing their identity may expose their children to bullying at school. I see. Uh, the defendants identified three types of prejudice to them if the plaintiffs allowed to proceed anonymously. First, they said the non-trivial cost of sealing or redacting court filings which strikes me as trivial. Uh, (laughs) Is that their... That's the best one, Second, they said anonymity might allow the plaintiff to make accusations that they would not have made if their identity were publicly known. Okay. And third, defendants contend that anonymity creates an imbalance when it comes to settlement negotiations. The defendants who are not anonymous may feel public pressure to settle the case in order to avoid bad publicity, while an anonymous plaintiff might hold out for a larger settlement because they face no such reputational risk. And that's the one that Judge Etkin focuses on as being the most significant. But there's another point they made, and that that brings this case into the what-were-you-thinking category. Mm -hmm. The plaintiff submitted to an interview with a major newspaper and used their name. Oh. And their picture appears. Do they have an attorney? Uh, I, I'm not sure if they, this was before or after they, they got an attorney. They're not okay. pro se at this point. Yeah. My read of the opinion mm-hmm. and of the judge's comments is that he would have allowed the plaintiff to proceed anonymously were it not for this newspaper. Thing. I see. Okay. Uh, and uh, Judge Atkin, you know, of all people, he said, uh, the court is mindful that coming out is a delicate process and that LGBTQ individuals may feel comfortable disclosing one aspect of their identity but uncomfortable disclosing another. Nevertheless, plaintiffs' very public coming out as genderqueer undermines their arguments about the harm that would be caused by disclosure of their transmasculinity. Whether the additional disclosure of plaintiffs' identity as transmasculine would so harm plaintiff as to outweigh the significant prejudice to defendants and the public interest in access to the identities of litigants, you know, that's the issue here yeah. for the court. And plaintiff has not met that significant burden, he says. Wow. So this was a great case. Well, thanks for listening. This and future podcasts can be found online at iTunes and legal.podbean.com. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Follow me at ED Lesh. Follow Art at ASLeonard1. Back again in uh, June for a regular edition of the LGBT Law Notes podcast, once again with Professor Art Leonard in a special Pride edition, I would assume, um, and maybe a Masterpiece Cake Shop edition. So that, that seems possible, possible. For, for the June issue, more likely for the summer. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll see if we're going to be eating cake in June.